Well, as you're making your way back to your seats, you can go ahead and turn in a Bible again to the book of Acts. We are continuing our journey through this book, little by little. We will start skipping ahead as we began to do last week. If you remember, the first few sermons were in pretty strict chronological order, but then starting last week, we began to to jump ahead a couple chapters, and we are doing the same this morning. So this is part nine of the series, but we will be looking in Acts chapter seven, the end of it, beginning in verse 54, and then reading into chapter eight, verse eight. So again, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter seven. It's also printed for you in your bulletin on page eight. Again, Acts 7, beginning in verse 54, and it says this. Now when they, which is the the crowd that's gathered, now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him, which is Stephen. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. This section of Acts is a transitional one. Obviously, we are entering into a story that is already in progress. We're picking up chapter 7 as it's already in motion. We're kind of, you know, it's like the treadmill is moving, right, and you're trying to hop onto it. as it's already moving, and kind of keep up and and stay in stride. As you know here in chapter 7, there is this lengthy speech, which we're not looking at, but you can look at in your own time. There's this lengthy speech that's given by Stephen, uh, one of the first deacons, the first deacon, remember, from last week, as he has been brought before the leadership um, in the city of that day. And you can see now on the heels of his speech, their reaction. It's a less than positive one. It's a less than accepting one. But again, this entire section, if we were to look at the speech itself 
as we look into these verses and as we even move forward into this chapter and eventually into chapter 9, this part of Acts is a transitional one. It's a hinge, really, of the entire book. And I say that because if you remember, up until this point, the experience of the early church has been almost exclusively a successful one. It's been exclusively successful up until this point. In fact, the church has been so successful, so supernaturally and miraculously successful, that if we're honest, it's almost kind of hard to relate, right? Because you just see for the first few chapters this unending uh, account of how God was doing these incredible things and building his church and just gathering people in, mass conversions. It's just been this you know, running success log Uh, so far, uh, of the church. Also, up until this point, the focal point of the book has been around the 12 apostles and particularly Peter. Particularly Peter. But in this section, we are introduced, if you noticed, to two new pivotal factors. Two new pivotal factors. A hinge, if you will, that will now make up and inform the rest of the book. And the first pivotal factor that we see here is opposition and persecution of the church. Opposition and persecution of the church. This is really the first glimpse that we see of it in the early community, but as we know, it won't be the last. It won't be the last glimpse we see in this book, and of course it's not the last glimpse that we see in church history, uh, all the way now up Uh, until our day. The second factor we're introduced to is the person of Saul. Saul. If you notice, it's Saul here uh, who is kind of in the background of the stoning of Stephen, of that martyrdom of Stephen, but you have that very instructive phrase that he was lending his approval. He kind of gazed upon it approvingly. And as we know, as the text tells us, the persecution of the church will continue through this man, Saul. Of course, Saul will be the one who just a chapter later, though, will be transformed into the powerful apostle Paul. And it will be Paul, then, through whom really the second half of the book will revolve around. The baton will kind of be passed, if you will, from Peter uh, to Paul. And so we're going to see all of these things. So again, it's a transitional place in the book, but still an instructional one for us today. So take a look again. If you notice, the passage, and now we're back into chapter 7, the end of chapter 7, verse 54, uh, the, the passage opens with Stephen. And Stephen, if you remember, was a man, again, we were introduced to last week. He is the first deacon in all of the scripture. He is the first deacon in the early church community. He is the one through whom the main mercy ministries of the church would be accomplished. But we encounter him here now, again, on the heels of this elaborate sermon, or really it's more of a speech, that he gives before the church leadership of the day, before particularly the temple leadership of the day. And if you notice, much like Jesus... Stephen was brought before the leadership unjustly. He was brought before the leadership, and he's accused, if you notice, of some of the same things. He's accused of blaspheming God, because if you remember, Jesus calls himself the Son of God. He does many things that the 
early, you know, uh, the, the Jewish leadership of that day considered blasphemous. Well, here now, Stephen, of course, doesn't consider himself the son of God, but what does he say? He looks up, and he sees who? He sees the Son of God. He sees Jesus, indeed, seated at the right hand of God in his rightful place. And so again, he is accused here of blasphemy, and he's ultimately killed. He's murdered. And again, much like Jesus, it's this mob injustice. It's this, again, first martyrdom in the book of Acts. But if you notice that Stephen embodies a a suffering similar to Jesus. He's unjustly accused. Uh, He's put to death unjustly at the hands of the mob. Again, if you notice how he embodies the same suffering of Jesus, did you also notice that he remarkably embodies the same graciousness as Christ? Did you notice that? He has the same posture in Christ's suffering, but he also has the same posture in his reaction. The incredible forgiveness of his persecutors. The incredible forgiveness of those uh, at, at whose hands he is suffering. And again, I think that's where we have to really pause in the story. Because if you're like me, you can get caught up, particularly in Acts, with trying to you know, unravel every exegetical knot, every historical detail, right? Well, where was this happening in the temple? And can we get a picture of the temple on the screen for a moment? And can we, can we was it in this court? Was it in that court? What does the name Stephen even mean in Greek? What is, you know, what is that, right? Again, all good things, right? These are details that we should unpack. There are things that need to be explained in Scripture. A good preacher should do that, right? Hopefully I do enough of that. But this is also the kind of story we have to pause for a moment and just just consider Stephen as a follower of Christ, Stephen as a brother uh, in the Lord, and think about his reaction. Again, in the midst of his trial and persecution, he fixes his eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of his faith. In the midst of his trial and persecution, who does he pray for? He prays for those whose hand is raised against him. What does he he say? Um, Look in verse 60. And falling to his knees, he cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Doesn't that sound familiar? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Again, he's embodying that Christ-likeness, even in this posture of great, great difficulty. And how remarkable is that? How downright otherworldly is that? How downright convicting is that? I know it's convicting for me. Because again, you've heard me say that there might come a day in the life of the American church where something like this is more commonplace. Hopefully not. Heaven forbid, right? But if we're honest, we know that in the first world, we've been spared from a lot of persecution that actually can kind of look like this in other places of the world and, of course, at other places in history. And as we live in an increasingly post-Christian society, as we live in an increasingly secularized world, we know that, that the society is increasingly hostile to 
the gospel. It's hostile to the claims of Christianity. And so things could eventually look like this, heaven forbid, but they could. Now, of course, they could also turn around. That's our hope, right? There could be revival that sweeps our land. There could be a great ingathering of people to the faith. There could be great conversions that happen. There could be a revival that sweeps the Western world and brings people, men and women, to saving faith. And things don't actually uh, degenerate, but things improve. Things get better. We see the church grow and flourish and prosper, and we see society you know, do the same. That's our hope. That's our prayer, right? But in the moment, in the moment, think about your life. In the moment, think about it. Think about the hardship and the persecution that we do actually endure today. And now compare it to Stephen's. It's such a lesser degree. It's such a lesser kind, right? We might be ridiculed for our faith. We might be cut off in traffic for that Jesus fish on our car, right? We might be thought of as weirdos for being Christians, and we believe in fairy tales, and we come to church, and aren't we silly, right? I mean, again, don't get me wrong. There are, there are, are ways where we are criticized by the world. There are ways that we are marginalized and written off by society. There are even ways that we are persecuted for our faith, perhaps in your workplace, perhaps in your school, perhaps by your neighbors, or even maybe unbelieving family members, right? We can still experience these things, but now compare them to Stephen. Compare it to Stephen, and again, the, the chasm between those experiences is so vast, and yet, what is our posture at times? What is our posture when we are actually persecuted, when we are actually challenged, and we are actually wronged, what is our posture? How quick are we to forgive? How quick are we to pray for those who raise their hand in opposition against us? Because you see, if you're like me, I'm not that way. I'm not prone to forgive that way. And again, think of that, how that measures up against the experience of Stephen, how quick we are to not forgive but to hold grudges, how quick we are to not forgive but to condemn those in the outside world who, again, uh, cause us difficulties, but then bring it inside the church now, inside the church. How quick are we to forgive our brothers and our sisters in the Lord who are sitting next to us when they wrong us? Not very quick, are we? Not very quick. And here you have a man, Stephen, who is forgiving those outside of the faith who are wronging him. He's interceding for them. He's praying for them. He's desiring their conversion. It's convicting. It's convicting. And again, those are, that's, for that, those, that's for those outside of the church. Now bring it back inside the church and ask yourself the same question. How quick are we to forgive our brothers and our sisters here at Lake Osborne? How quick are we to forgive our brothers and our sisters who are actually in the faith our fellow Christians, when they wrong us, how quick are we to pray for them? How quick are we, again, to forgive them, to count everything lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord? How quick are we to forgive just as Christ forgave us? It's a, it's a, humbling, a humbling reminder, a humbling account. Now, again, don't get me wrong. I mean, we can't sometimes not compare ourselves. I mean, again, you think about someone like Stephen, and we know that he was put in an unbelievable position. We know the apostles and even the early deacons 
had these you know, miraculous powers, really. They could heal. They could do things like that. Uh, it's hard to compare eras, right? I mean, think about even in sports. It's hard to do that, right? We ask that question all the time. Well, what if Babe Ruth pitched today? Would he be as good? You know, how many more points would uh, Pistol Pete Maravich have scored if there was a three-point line during the college career he had, right? It's hard to compare, right? They don't always line up. Well, it's also true in Scripture. You can say, yeah, well, come on, man. You're comparing me to Stephen. I mean, Stephen could, you know, uh, do miraculous things. Think about Philip, who we just read about. He's healing people. And Peter, he healed people. We can't compare ourselves. That's true to some extent, but what's not true? Don't we have the same spirit? We do. The same Lord? We do. And so, again, it's just convicting reminder that we are called the same postures of deference and forgiveness and otherworldly discipleship that we see here, we are reminded of, of here. How readily do we forgive those who wrong us? But the story continues, if you notice, it continues uh, into chapter 8, and we're, and we're told here that the church, at the hands of this persecution, and particularly at the hands of the persecution that comes from Saul, and the persecution that Stephen himself encounters, the church scatters. The church scatters. If you look in verse uh, 1 of chapter 8, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now those locations should sound familiar. Where did Jesus tell his followers that they would be his witnesses in the Great Commission. Judea, Samaria, first Jerusalem, right? But then where? To the very ends of the earth. Now, in a sense, we've already seen part of that happen. They have been witnesses to Christ in Jerusalem. We saw that particularly come in power at Pentecost. And you could even make the argument that they were beginning to become witnesses to the rest of the known world because, again, people had been flocking in from those places to Jerusalem um, at Pentecost. But there hadn't been this proactive going out as witnesses. It's been up to this point kind of passive, if you will. People have been coming into the city from all places, but the apostles and the, and the early community around them hadn't been very active in going out, if you will, to, again, Judea, the rest of Judea, to Samaria, uh, that place that had a, a bad reputation in that day, uh, to the ends of the earth. Those things hadn't really been occurring until what happens? Until hardship happens. Until persecution comes. Until difficulty comes. Then you see the church begin to scatter. You see the church begin to actually go out to the far reaches of the known world at the time. And so what's interesting is that it's as if the Lord uses this difficulty as the catalyst to actually now grow the church. He uses difficulty as the catalyst to actually accomplish the mission that he had already um, promised them would happen and already called them to. And again, now take that lens, just like you took the, took the lens of Stephen's forgiveness and applied it to your life, take the lens of that account and now apply it to your life. And now ask yourself, how does God often do that with us? 
How does God often gain his best victories, if you will, through what in the moment look like losses? How does God often gain victories in what in the moment appear to be defeats? Again, we know the, the, the highest you know, paradigmatic example of that is the cross, is it not? That in the death and crucifixion of Christ, God was securing eternal life for all who believe. The empty tomb is the paradigmatic example of that. That in the place of death burst forth life and life everlasting. But now we see in the early church and all throughout the rest of the New Testament, and now we also will see in our lives that this is the same God, the God of the resurrection, who often now works life out of what seems to be death. He works victory out of what seems to be losses and defeats. Again, think about this. Out of the martyrdom of Stephen, out of the exile and scattering of the early church, two things that appear to be nothing other than losses, God now uses to work a victory in his church, and he actually uses those things to accomplish his original purposes. Isn't that amazing? That the purposes of God aren't actually thwarted by these things. They're accomplished. They're accomplished. Again, you see now his people go out and preach the message, go out and take the message with them. And that's so like God, is it not? The God of the resurrection. This is his handiwork. Working life out of death, working victory out of defeat. And again, how can you ask yourself this morning how he does that in your own life? In your own life. How does he often do his best work in you? How does he often do his best work in your life when difficulty comes, when adversity comes? How does he often, again, turn those things actually into good? How does he actually use those things to accomplish his purposes? Because remember, this is the God who has told us that what? He is for us and not against us. That he takes all things and works them together for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. And again, we can see that here uh, happening in, in the book of Acts. So the church scatters, and in its scattering, again, now look in verse 4, we see men preaching, we see people preaching and taking the good news with them. And in verse 4 and 5, we're introduced to another one of the deacons, we're introduced to Philip. If you remember, he was one of the seven, along with Stephen, who was appointed to the office of deacon. And here now we see him going out and sharing the good news, which is an indication that in the early church, the offices maybe overlapped a bit more than they do today. Our deacons aren't necessarily men who will preach today, but here, you know, in the early church, in that evangelistic period, even the deacons are going out, and they're proclaiming and preaching, and even Philip is someone who has miraculous power, you know, flowing through him. But again, we can see him here preaching and taking the gospel message with him. And if you notice, he finds a receptive and willing audience in Samaria. In Samaria. And this is a very intentional kind of juxtaposition, if you will, to the rejection that the church was getting in Jerusalem, but now the acceptance they're finding in Samaria. 
If you remember, the church flourishes in Jerusalem initially. You know, Pentecost comes, the Spirit comes, um, and we're even told that, and if you remember in the end of chapter 6, we were even told that so many people were coming to the faith, it even included the priests. Uh, and so the gospel is permeating, if you will, even into the highest ranks of temple leadership at the time. But as that begins to happen more and more, they're now met with rejection and, and persecution. And if you remember, this is the same city which would have rejected and did reject Christ earlier. Remember, he comes to his own, and his own do not recognize him. But to those who receive him, he gives the right to become children of God. And so just as Jerusalem rejected Christ, they now reject his followers. And so what happens? The gospel now goes out to places like Samaria. It goes to the fringes, if you will. It goes to the outsiders. It goes to those who are not considered religious insiders, but are the outsiders of society. And of course, we see that in embryonic form here. It's going to happen in mass with the Apostle Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, who will take that message to the known Mediterranean world. And yes, he himself will also uh, receive some persecution and rejection, but he'll also see widespread acceptance of the gospel, widespread establishment of churches in these communities. And again, what is that a picture of? What is that a reminder of, of for us today? That the message of the gospel, the free grace and love and acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ, is never the exclusive property of the religious insider or for those who are in the church, if you will, but only here in name only, the gospel is for anyone who believes. The gospel is for anyone who trusts the strong name of Jesus and receives it with a glad heart. And again, that's a, an encouraging reminder for us that we can now go out then like these early followers and take the message to the surrounding community, take it to the known world, and we're going to assume rejection comes. We're going to assume acceptance will not follow. And yet the testimony of Scripture is always to the opposite, that God does his best work in those times where it appears like he's losing. And God's gospel, his message, finds acceptance and embrace in places that we would often never expect. And so again, what an incredible encouragement to us as we are also called to be witnesses on his behalf in our world that we can follow in faith and know that he blesses our efforts. You see, that's our story. Our story is the same story that we see here. A gospel, a good news, a savior, namely Christ, who not only radically forgives us, but then makes us people capable of radical forgiveness in our own lives. A gospel, a savior, namely Christ, who sends us in life, sometimes using the winds of adversity, but then enables us to find fruit, enables us to, to blossom where we're planted. That's what Philip did. It was the winds of adversity which pushed him out of his home, which pushed him out of his comfort zone, which pushed him out of Jerusalem, yet he finds himself in Samaria, and what happens? He's faithful, and he blossoms where he's planted. We see a gospel and a savior, namely Christ Jesus, who commissions all of us to preach his good news to any 
and all who will receive it by faith so that we too, here in Lake Worth, just like in Samaria, will find joy. We'll find joy. We'll find joy in our families. We'll find joy in our churches and communities. Look there at verse 8. Again, Acts 8, chapter 8. The preaching of the gospel goes forth. So there was much joy in that city. You see, that's our goal. We go out and we're faithful. We go out no matter what, where, where life pushes us. And we proclaim the gospel so that those around us, our families, our communities, and yes, even our cities, will experience that joy of the Lord. May the Lord bless us. May he keep us. May he enable us to be so through his spirit. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. We thank you for its relevance. We thank you even for its convicting nature. Again, Lord, we know that we are not uh, one of the 12 apostles. We know that we're not one of those seven deacons originally commissioned. Lord, we can read of those in Scripture and almost view them as superheroes, which we can never compare ourselves to. And in a sense, there is some truth to that. We know that there was a unique calling for those 12, a unique calling for those seven. They ministered in an incredibly unique time in the history of redemption. But Lord, we also know that we have the same spirit, that we have been called, as we heard even earlier in Ephesians in our assurance of pardon, to one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And so Lord, we know that you are also with us like you were with them. We know that you also are with us through adversity. We know that you are also with us through changing times. We know that you are also with us, Lord, in a world that seems just a, a tough place to be a Christian. And so, Lord, would you encourage us as you have through your word? Would you empower us afresh through your spirit to, to hold fast to what we believe, to fix our eyes on you, to take that gospel message with us everywhere we go, even when it's hard, knowing that you are with us, that you love us, that you are the same God who was active in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. You are also active today in Lake Worth, Palm Beach County, 2020 America. So Lord, bless us, encourage us, we ask. Use us ultimately for your glory. In Christ's name. Amen.